Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part two of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Olympic hero, Jesse Owens. Now let's return to our story about Jesse Owens. If the second day of the Olympics was Owens' happiest, Tuesday, April 4th, might have been the most action-packed. He was scheduled to participate, assuming he was not eliminated, in a long jump heat, semi-final and final, and a 200-meter heat and quarterfinals, all occurring within hours of each other throughout the day. While this seemed like a formidable challenge, Jesse did have the advantage of getting the 100 meters behind him. The 200 meters was probably his strongest event. Any mistake at the start could be overcome over a greater distance. This seemed apparent in his first 200 meter heat, which he won by a distance of 10 yards. Owens then had to hustle to the long jump competition, which also began at 10.30 a.m. Here he faced an athlete from Germany who was his most formidable foreign competition, a 22-year-old German, Karl Ludwig Lutz Long. Long was the current German and European record holder, not quite Owen's equal, but certainly dangerous if Jesse should falter. And, proving that he was human, Jesse did initially stumble during what should have been an easy qualification. He was charged with his first of three jumps when he typically jogged on the runway and through the landing area just to get a feel for the surface. This American warm-up practice was unknown in Europe, and despite even the head coach of the American track and field contingent getting into the face of the officials, the practice jump counted. The incident seemed to rattle Owens. His second jump was only 23 feet, 3 inches, short of what he needed to qualify for the next round, and more than 3 feet shorter than his own world record. At this point, according to his later account, Owens was approached by Lutz Long who made small talk and suggested that Jesse put a mark before the takeoff board to be sure that he didn't foul on his last attempt. According to some accounts, the German even placed a sweatshirt a few inches short of the board as additional guidance. Owen's personal coach, Larry Snyder, could only watch from the stands, like the other spectators fully aware of the athlete's predicament. This time, probably calmer, Owens, even after jumping a complete foot behind the takeoff board, leapt over 25 feet, qualifying easily. Long smiled, and Owens shook his hand, grateful for the German sportsmanship. Jesse restored order in the 200-meter quarterfinal, again tying the world record he had set that morning at 21.1 seconds. Later that afternoon, at 4.30, he participated in the long jump semifinal that served to eliminate 10 of the remaining 16 competitors. Both Owens and Lutz Long broke the existing Olympic record. 
jumping well over 25 feet to the delight of the crowd and setting up a climactic final. Owens faulted on his first jump of the finals and his German competitor regressed to 25 feet 4 inches. But on his second jump, Long pressed Owens to the limit with a leap of 25 feet 10 inches. Owens responded like a true champion, establishing a new Olympic record with a jump of 26 feet. When Long faulted on his third and last try, Owens had his second gold. Not to leave anything on the table, his final attempt measured 26 feet 5.5 inches, another Olympic record. Long was the first to congratulate him after the American landed in the sand, the crowd also roaring over this exceptional feat. Together, the two athletes walked on the track arm-in-arm, in in clear view of the spectators, including Adolf Hitler. But, after sharing this moment of sportsmanship, Long was conveyed to a private room under the stands where he was personally greeted and congratulated by Hitler and his entourage. There would be no such interaction by Hitler with Jesse Owens or any other black member of the American contingent. Hitler did also privately meet and greet with Helen Stevens, the 18-year-old American phenomenon who won the women's 100 meters, underlining Hitler's apparent desire to ignore any success on the part of black Americans, even unofficially. Although he was due to run in the finals of the 200 meters on Wednesday, August 5th, Jesse Owens tried to throttle back some of the intensity of the previous 48 hours. He was already the biggest celebrity of the Olympic Games, and despite his attempt to sleep late on Wednesday morning, his brick guesthouse swarmed with fans and even athletes crowding around the windows trying to get a glimpse of the American track star. Euless Peacock was injured. Ralph Metcalf had not qualified at the American Olympic trials, so Owen's only major impediment was the weather, cold temperatures, and a relentless drizzle that prompted the athletes to don thick blankets while waiting for their event in the infield. Owens easily won his semifinal heat. In the finals, he would face Matthew Mack Robinson from Pasadena City College and Canadian Lee Orr, who had posted competitive times in the preliminary heats. Robinson ran the race of his life, finishing at 21.1 seconds, but it wasn't good enough. Jesse Owens putting on what might have been his best track effort of the games, setting a world record of 20.7 on a curved track, only a tenth of a second off the world mark on a straightaway. This was supposed to be Owens' last Olympic effort, but then another ugly controversy prompted by the current political environment reared its head. On the morning of Saturday, April 8th, the track coach of the American Olympic team, Lawson Robertson, called a meeting of the sprinters representing the U.S. in the 100-meter event. That afternoon, the 4x100 relay was scheduled, and the American relay team of Frank Wyckoff, Marty Glickman, Sam Stoller were perceived by all of the team as definite participants. When previously asked about the possibility of Jesse Owens attempting to win a fourth gold medal, Robertson repeatedly dismissed the idea, saying only that he might add Ralph Metcalf to the team in place of Foy Draper, who was considered the least capable. Robertson may have wanted to give Metcalf, a talented runner, another shot at gold, Metcalf having finished second to Owens in the 100 meters. But both Stoller and Glickman were stunned when Lawson Robertson explained that there were rumors that the German team 
had secretly stashed some sprinters who might actually be a threat to win the relay, and therefore Owens and Metcalf were added to the relay team and Glickman and Stoller were dropped. Over the years, several accounts emerged about what transpired in the ensuing heated discussion. Marty Glickman claimed later that initially Jesse Owens objected and said that he had his medals and that the coach should, quote, let Marty and Sam run. Dean Cromwell, the coach of the USC track team and an Olympic assistant to Lawson Robertson, responded forcefully, quote, you'll do as you're told to do, unquote. Glickman, only 18 years old, still had the wherewithal to object, declaring that the idea that other teams were hiding sprinters for some sneak attack was ridiculous. The best the Germans had was Eric Borchmeyer, who had finished fifth in the 100-meter final. Any American in the room could probably beat Borchmeyer. When Robertson remained adamant, Glickman then raised what was probably the unspoken undercurrent on everyone's mind, that Glickman and Stoller were the only two Jews on the track team and the only Americans who would not get to compete at all, something that would raise a lot of controversy back in the States. Robertson cut him off by saying that he, Robertson, would worry about that. Stoller, initially so shocked that he couldn't speak, eventually pointed out that both he and Glickman had beaten Foy Draper routinely and were considered faster. Robertson merely replied that Draper had more experience, and that was his final decision. To this day, no one really knows what prompted Lawson Robertson's behavior. One account had Joseph Goebbels himself interceding with Avery Brundage, explaining that the host country and Adolf Hitler would be most displeased if Jews were allowed to compete and win gold medals, a foregone conclusion, even with Glickman and Stoller. Only days before the relay, Robertson publicly stated that he wanted to give as many athletes as possible a shot at a medal, so his subsequent decision was most troubling. Additionally, Robertson left his gold and bronze winners off of the 400-meter relay team, a decision that allowed Great Britain to actually win the race. This inconsistency indicated that some other influence was brought to bear. Avery Brundage himself, an eventual member of the America First Committee, a prominent isolationist, anti-Semitic group that opposed America's entry into World War II, may have on his own interceded to remove the two Jewish athletes from competition. Quite telling, two years later, Nazi Germany rewarded his construction company, the source of his great wealth, with the contract to build the German embassy in Washington, D.C. Nevertheless, when the trials for the 100-meter relay were run on the afternoon of the 8th, the teams of Owens, Metcalf, Draper, and Wyckoff qualified easily. Glickman was already commiserating with media, and was in attendance at the stadium, but Stoller was so upset he stayed in the Olympic Village, this incident transpiring on his 21st birthday. The next day, the American relay team crushed the competition, no secret German surprise and evidence. In fact, the Germans did not finish in the top three, only gaining bronze when the Dutch team was disqualified for dropping a baton. The American team's time of 39.8 seconds was a new world record, due mostly to Owens and Metcalf's first two legs. Had Stoller and Glickman run, they would have undoubtedly been a part of an Olympic mark that stood for 20 years. The fallout from this incident remained quite visible, especially when Marty Glickman eventually became a New York sports journalism icon, 
a legendary sportscasting pioneer and the voice of the New York Knicks, Rangers, and football giants for over three decades. Although Glickman later specifically stated that Owens protested the coach's decision, Ralph Metcalf remembered the incident differently. Quote, Jesse is one of my best friends. I'm glad he won his medals, but he already had three when the relay meeting was held. He didn't say a word that I recall. I guess he wanted number four that bad, unquote. Owens insisted that Metcalf take the highest step on the podium during the medal celebration for Jesse's fourth and final Olympic gold medal. Incredibly, Owens and many other American athletes' reward for their Olympic heroics was a demand from the AAU to participate in several European track meets put together to generate revenue to pay the AAU's expenses incurred by sending a team to the Olympic Games. Without payment of even meal money, Owens and several other track athletes took part in in events in Cologne the day after the 100-meter finals. Subsequent meets took place on a daily basis in Prague, Essen, and then London. When Owens was then told that he was to head for Stockholm for another meet, he refused. Even his personal coach, Snyder, telling him to go back to the States to take advantage of opportunities there. Even in London, it was clear that Owens was now an international celebrity, mobbed for autographs and attention wherever he went. When the entourage of American athletes left for Sweden and the next AAU co-sanctioned event, Owens was a no-show. In retaliation, Avery Brundage and AAU official Daniel Ferris hastily convened a press conference on August 16th only hours before the Olympics' closing ceremonies to announce that Jesse Owens was suspended from all further amateur competition in the United States. Upon his return to the States, Jesse remained cheerful despite the AAU controversy. He was receiving all kinds of commercial offers, promising a great deal of money for various jobs, and the press overwhelmingly sided with him versus the amateur sports bureaucracy which was seen as greedy, exploitative, and ungrateful to an individual who had represented the USA in a remarkable renunciation of Nazi bigotry and propaganda. Arriving in Manhattan aboard the Queen Mary, he was greeted by his family and wife and then proceeded back home to Cleveland by train. On advice from Snyder, he deflected any questions about the AAU or Brundage and insisted that he wanted to graduate from Ohio State and compete in the Big Ten, as he still had one year of eligibility. In Cleveland, he received a massive parade and a celebration at City Hall, attended by 4,000 people, politicians showering him with endless speeches filled with praise and admiration. A similar event awaited in Columbus, where Ohio State's athletic director implored him to return for his senior year. Jesse implied publicly that he would be back, but his mind was already made up. He returned to New York and signed an agreement with the New York agent of Bill Bojangles Robinson, at the time one of the biggest black stars in show business. He endured one more ticker tape parade with the rest of the Olympic team and then looked forward to cashing in on Olympic glory. Jesse Owens was about to learn a harsh lesson about fleeting fame and organizational power. Most of the telegrams he received immediately after the Olympics, dangling offers from Hollywood or corporations, turned out to be either outright fakes or publicity stunts meant to ride on Jesse's momentary high-profile coattails. 
the only path to any real money was competing in track meets promoted by high-profile urban track clubs that paid expense money based on the stature of the competitor. Owens accepted an offer from just such an entity, New York's Caledonian Club, for an appearance that generated enough anticipation as to be booked into Yankee Stadium on September 17th. But there was a major issue with this scenario. Even these quasi-professional meets had to be sanctioned by the AAU, and the response was predictable. Jesse was already suspended and had signed a contract with a professional agent, and Daniel Ferris reiterated his suspension, now doubly enforced due to the athlete's stated intention of turning professional. The Yankee Stadium event was quickly canceled. Even after the local Cleveland AAU requested that Owens be reinstated and his alleged agent, Marty Forkins, claimed that Owens had not ever actually signed a contract, the AAU claimed that they had a copy of it, and Owens' mere statement of wishing to turn pro was enough to invalidate his amateur status. The AAU seemed intent on especially singling out a national hero who might potentially undermine their absolute monopoly on amateur sports and the athletes who competed in their events. Undaunted, Jesse attempted to exploit another revenue stream. The national election of 1936 was fast approaching. Both parties discreetly attempted to cultivate the star athlete's public support. He was routinely asked who he would endorse in the upcoming election between President Roosevelt and Alf Landon, his Republican opponent. African-Americans were slowly but inexorably becoming a factor in American politics, especially in the Northeast and Midwest, where millions of black people migrated to large urban areas. Traditionally, voting Republican based on the party's connection to Abe Lincoln, many black Americans were recognizing that their own personal interest might be better served by Democrats. With the recent eclipse of Joe Lewis, Jesse Owens was the major black sports celebrity in the U.S., popular, and most importantly, recognizable to blue-collar voters everywhere. His endorsement mattered, especially because, despite the New Deal, Franklin D. Roosevelt did little to appeal directly to the black community. Early in September, despite admitting even publicly that he knew nothing about politics, Jesse Owens endorsed Alf Landon, saying that Roosevelt had done virtually nothing for black people. This endorsement resulted from a private deal that paid Owens at least $10,000, provided by a wealthy Republican donor. Although money was probably a great motivation, privately Owens was probably miffed that the White House had never even acknowledged him or any other of his black Olympic teammates. Asked about this later, Owens maintained that, Hitler didn't snub me. It was our president who snubbed me. He didn't even send a telegram. Owens spent the fall appearing at rallies, doing little more than recounting a few anecdotes and signing autographs, frequently in front of a large audience. It did Alf Landon little good. He lost the election in a landslide, carrying only two states. For the first time, black voters solidly backed a Democrat, Jesse Owens notwithstanding. Marty Forkins then began booking Jesse for appearances at athletic events, on radio, wherever a paid fee could be generated, a lucrative pastime, so much so that the federal government eventually filed a lien on unpaid taxes of over $20,000 earned in 1936. This hiccup was probably caused by carelessness as much as anything else. For the first time in his life, Jesse Owens could live comfortably. Still, he was not very discerning on what offers he accepted. 
one of the low points of his post-Olympic career, was running against a horse, beating the animal in a 100-yard dash at the halftime of a soccer game in Havana. Another was incredibly finishing second again in the 1936 Sullivan Amateur Award competition, the Olympic decathlon champion winning instead, this narrow result most likely because of Owen's highly publicized squabbles with the AAU and his current professional status. Jesse soldiered on, first touring as an MC with a band that appeared in black venues in the Midwest and Deep South, and also organizing a basketball team called the Olympians that were fashioned after the Harlem Globetrotters. He also acquired a works project administration job in Cleveland as a PE instructor that allowed him to moonlight for occasional promotions in which he ran against Major League Baseball players at the Brooklyn Dodgers' Ebbets Field, and even a contrived race against Joe Lewis in between games of a Chicago doubleheader between two black baseball teams, choreographed so Lewis won. But investments in a poorly run dry cleaning business sent him to bankruptcy court in May of 1939. Another year of traveling with barnstorming baseball teams prompted Jesse to return to Ohio State in 1940, hoping to pay the bills with another dry cleaning business. Both of his parents died within a year of each other around this time, Jesse now also trying to provide for a family of three girls. He was never able to achieve a GPA high enough to graduate and left Ohio State again in December of 1941. The onset of World War II expanded opportunity for black Americans in industry and the military, and Jesse was no exception. Initially, he was exempt from the draft as a married father of three. He was also able to get a job as a director of a physical fitness program for the Office of Civil Defense. The job entailed traveling the country, offering clinics involving physical fitness, lecturing on health and physical fitness regimens, and imparting information about exercise programs. Most importantly, despite his reclassification as 1A, he was employed in a, quote, war industry position, unquote, and not eligible for the draft. From the government through a fellow former collegiate track athlete, Willis Ward, Jesse was hired by the Ford Motor Company in Detroit in April of 1943 as the, quote, assistant director of Negro personnel, unquote. When Ward was called into active duty, Owens was promoted into his job as the director. Despite his prestigious position within an American industrial powerhouse, Jesse was caught up in a power struggle between Ford's director of labor relations, Harry Bennett, who routinely employed thuggery to intimidate union organizers and employees, and the United Auto Workers Union, who were verging on successfully achieving complete unionization of the auto industry. When Edsel Ford, Henry Ford's son, died of cancer in 1943, his presumed heir, Henry Ford II, was in the Navy, prompting the elderly and now mentally challenged Henry Ford Sr. to return to running the company. Harry Bennett was originally hired by Henry Ford as a union buster, but its continued employment and methods were a symptom of the senior Ford's inability to evolve Ford into a modern American corporation. Ford Motor began to post monthly losses of millions of dollars despite lucrative government contracts. To make things worse, a massive race riot broke out in Detroit during the summer of 1943, an incident that killed 34 people caused millions of dollars in property damage. Federal troops eventually called in to restore order. 
Ford recognized that they needed to project a much more positive community image. And to that end, Owens became more of a public relations executive as opposed to a corporate hatchet man working with the Urban League to improve aspects of Ford's employees' lives. But the end of the war brought the return of Henry Ford II from the Navy, and he eventually cleaned house, especially intent on removing Bennett and anyone associated with him. This included Jesse Owens, who was terminated in October of 1945. Jesse would have to hustle for the next few years to make a living with more barnstorming tours and various promotional gigs associated with black clothing stores and dry cleaning establishments. But once again, international politics reared its head to influence Jesse's economic fortunes. With the advent of the Cold War and the emergence of the American Civil Rights Movement, many American black celebrities were outspoken in their criticism of race relations in the U.S., this attitude was evinced openly by Paul Robeson, who told a European audience that in the event of an American war with the Soviet Union, African Americans should not participate. Anger from returning black veterans who fought in World War II only to return to a segregated and frequently racist America increased over time. The American government and establishment needed to promote the perspective of black Americans who did not share the sentiment. Suddenly, there was an official and sustained embrace of Jesse Owens as a successful and patriotic American. In 1950, the Associated Press voted him the outstanding track athlete of the first half century. A huge celebratory dinner took place in Chicago with hundreds of high-profile political and business figures, as well as other athletes and individuals associated with American amateur sport. Astoundingly, Avery Brundage, now head of the International Olympic Committee, took part. Jesse, an individual worth cultivating as a potentially positive Olympic role model. Owens also became very visibly involved in working with youth groups in underprivileged neighborhoods, a pastime that brought him a great deal of positive visibility in the eyes of the public. Owens traveled in an official U.S. capacity overseas, including a return to Berlin in 1951. There he would fulfill an ambition that stemmed from the last letter he ever received from Lutz Long, shortly before the German was killed during the war in Sicily in 1943. The two men remained close after the Berlin Olympics and corresponded on several occasions. In part, Lutz stated, My heart tells me, if I be honest with you, that this is the last letter I shall ever write. If it is so, I ask you something. It is a something so very important to me. It is you go to Germany when this war is done. Some day find my Carl and tell him about his father. Tell him, Jesse, what times were like when we were not separated by war. I am saying, tell him how things can be between men on this earth. During his visit to Berlin, Owens did meet with Lutz Long's son. Like many stories concerning history, the exact details of how much Long contributed to Jesse Owens' long jump win is disputed, but their relationship and Long's open embrace and interaction with the American in front of the Nazi hierarchy is indisputable. Jesse Owens interacted with Carl Long on several other occasions, including serving as best man at his wedding, and the Owens and Long families have remained in touch to this day. It was this type of activity that generated a great deal of official respect for Jesse Owens throughout the 50s. The conservative Eisenhower administration sent him on officially sponsored trips around the world 
to promote goodwill and American values. Suddenly, Jesse was no longer having to hustle a living, the result of appointments to several public sector positions. Jesse also traveled to the 1956 Olympic Games in Melbourne as a personal representative of the United States, the government recognizing that the U.S.-USSR Olympics rivalry was a proxy for the Cold War. His 1960 appearance on This Is Your Life, a popular television show, reunited him with, among others, his high school coach, Charles Riley. Later that year, his daughter was actually crowned Ohio State's homecoming queen. But the 60s also brought some high-profile incidents that raised controversy. Publicly taking sides with the Teamsters in a union election involving Chicago taxicabs got him fired from his state-appointed position as the head of the Illinois Youth Authority, a position already made tenuous by his support of Republicans in a state run by a newly elected Democratic governor. Much more grave was an investigation into Owen's attitudes with regard to the IRS. A lengthy investigation concluded that he did not even file a federal tax return from 1954 to 1962. Much of his income during this time period came from speaking engagements and other payment streams that did not incur withholding. Perhaps the entire investigation stemmed from Jesse's repeated public stance criticizing the high taxation incurred by athletes like heavyweight champion Floyd Patterson. Whatever the case, he was indicted, found guilty of tax evasion, and was looking at fines of over $40,000, back taxes, and even possible jail time. In the end, Owens paid a relatively modest fine of $3,000, avoided any jail time, and left court with mostly a severe hit to his public image. Having to come up with over $100,000 in fines, back taxes, interest, and attorney's fees put a damper on the Owens bank account, and he needed to hit the lecture circuit. But the American upheaval involving both the Vietnam War and the national civil rights movement would pigeonhole Jesse Owens as someone rather out of step with the changing times. He was openly critical of the heated rhetoric of high-profile black activists like Rap Brown and Stokely Carmichael. He once famously stated, quote, no man ever reached greatness in athletics or anything else with a society and a government that taught him that you can get something for nothing, unquote. This perspective might have been appropriate for a right-wing Republican president of a large investment bank, but it made Jesse, in the age of the likes of Muhammad Ali and Jim Brown, a veritable walking anachronism, and in one sense he was. Having grown up in the Deep South, outnumbered in a hostile, racist environment, he had no choice but to turn the other cheek, ignore bigotry, and keep a smile on his face. But a changed America and diverse political perspectives made that approach obsolete, and it resulted in more controversy in an arena that struck closest to home, the Olympics themselves. The same civil rights protests and upheaval that swept America in the 60s came for the Olympics in 1968. Many black collegiate or track athletes either discussed a total boycott of the games or a protest of some kind while at the site in Mexico City. This feeling was amplified when South Africa was initially notified, despite their apartheid regime, that they could participate, a directive that caused indignation throughout Africa. With the emergence of network sports and ABC's attempt to score a ratings bonanza at the expense of its older rivals, 
the Olympics suddenly became a highly publicized event, the voice of Jesse Owens prominently and visibly opposing a boycott as self-defeating. A documentary made by Bud Greenspan entitled Jesse Owens Returns to Berlin was shown on over 180 American and 15 international television stations. And Jesse got to make some tenuous comparisons to the boycott attempt in 1936, as if this was the same situation or ethical quandary. In 1968, black athletes did not have an issue with Mexico. They had an issue with representing their own country. In the end, a boycott was mostly diffused, especially when South Africa's invitation was withdrawn. Jesse Owens traveled to the 1968 Olympics as a guest of the Mexican government, a consultant to the U.S. Olympic Committee, and a radio commentator for the Mutual Broadcasting Network. Although Owens must have been astonished when long jumper Bob Beeman broke the existing world record by almost two feet, much more impactful was a coordinated protest by two black track athletes, Tommy Smith and John Carlos winning gold and bronze respectively in the 200 meters, while on the victory podium, the two athletes raised their black glove fists during the playing of the American National Anthem, while the protest caused a media sensation that reverberated around the world. It prompted great anger from the U.S. Olympic Committee and especially Avery Brundage, still the president of the IOC. Owens was sent to meet with a group of athletes to attempt to mitigate the situation and possibly extract a face-saving apology before the IOC punished anyone. He failed miserably to even get any white participants to leave the meeting. The consensus that they supported Smith and Carlos more than he did. Sadly, the lengthy session deteriorated into anger and recriminations. The next day, the IOC kicked Carlos and Smith out of the Olympic Village and suspended them from Olympic competition. When questioned as to why it was acceptable for Germans to use the Nazi salute on the victory stand, but that Smith and Carlos's behavior was unacceptable, Avery Brundage actually replied that the Nazi salute was the accepted national salute in the country in that time period. The incident so disturbed Jesse Owens that upon returning to the U.S., he immediately began collaborating on a book to discuss some of the issues raised in Mexico City. Entitled Blackfink, it was a rather tone-deaf work filled with the same platitudes he used in many speeches around the country. One sentence sums up a perspective that certainly would prove provocative. Quote, if the Negro doesn't succeed in today's America, it is because he has chosen to fail. Unquote. If nothing else, the book reestablished Owens in the business and political communities. He was retained as a consultant by such corporations as Sears, United Fruit Company, Johnson & Johnson, and Ford Motor, mostly to give motivational speeches to employees and executives. Owens' book was actually positively reviewed in the establishment press, but the reaction in the black community was something else. Jesse was cast as insensitive to the actual conditions and experiences of many of his fellow African Americans with bigotry, economic, and social deprivation. This reaction was so powerful that upon reflection, Owens wrote another book in 1972 entitled I Have Changed, a book that read like somewhat of an apology and an acknowledgement that perhaps protest against the social and economic conditions confronting black Americans was completely justified. 
But Owen still repeated a lot of patriotic rhetoric about America as a land of opportunity and limitless economic possibility. 1972 also brought another Olympics, this the ill-fated games at Munich, which involved the terrorist murder of 11 Israeli Olympic athletes. Despite this tragic event, and in spite of some controversy over whether the games should continue, they did, and Jesse Owens got caught up in mediating another racially charged situation. Vince Matthews and Wayne Collette, gold and silver medalists in the 400-meter sprint, conducted their own possibly spontaneous medal ceremony protest in which they did not look at the American flag, got on the top level of the podium together, and spoke with each other twirling their medals around their fingers during the national anthem. The crowd acknowledged this lack of respect with boos and whistles, and both U.S. and International Olympic Committee members immediately convened to discuss appropriate punishment. Jesse Owens was sent to meet with the two men in an attempt to at least get them to apologize. Neither sprinter agreed and would not officially even allow Owens to represent them in any official IOC discussion. Owens then hinted that he could help both athletes with post-Olympic employment with some of the corporations he worked with, but got nowhere. Part of his determination stemmed from Matthews and Collette's membership on the 400-meter relay team. If suspended, the U.S. would not be able to even field a full squad of competitors. But he got nowhere, Matthews especially scoffing at such an offer of corporate help. Owens gave up. Within hours, the two American sprinters were banned from any further competition, and the American team, the heavy favorite in the event, had to scratch the gold medal eventually won by Kenya. Jesse Owens never discussed this incident. He spent the next eight years doing what he had done for some time, public speaking. By now, he would enthrall audiences with yarns about being personally snubbed by Hitler and the help he received from Lutz Long and other tales, occasionally admitting to particularly determined journalists that these stories were embroidered so that, quote, people got to hear what they wanted to hear, and I got paid for telling them, unquote. He received an honorary degree from Ohio State, awards from the NCAA, induction into the Track and Field Hall of Fame, the Medal of Freedom from President Gerald Ford, and the Living Legends Award from President Jimmy Carter, Owens now perceived as a national treasure without any partisan stigma. Ironically, one of America's leading symbols of physical fitness, Jesse Owens eventually contracted lung cancer, the result of smoking a pack of cigarettes a day for the last 30 years of his life. He died only three months after this diagnosis on March 31, 1980, was buried in Chicago. Today, his four gold medals are on display at Ohio State University, but these are replacement medals that Jesse requested to be reissued after the first set were, quote, lost, unquote. In fact, he gave one of his original medals to Bill Bojangles Robinson, an appreciation for the entertainer's help in finding Owen's work when he returned from the Olympics. This medal was auctioned off by Robinson's family in 2013 for almost $1.5 million and was purchased by financier Ron Burkle. Although rumors that the other three medals were used to pay off an extensive Pittsburgh hotel debt in the late 50s, or that another medal wound up in the possession of another Olympic teammate, these medals have never been positively authenticated. Because the 1936 medals were not inscribed with either the winner's name or event, today the whereabouts of Jesse Owens' three other original gold medals is uncertain.
Thank you for listening to part two of this podcast about Jesse Owens. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books Jesse Owens, An American Life by William J. Baker and Triumph, The Untold Story of Jesse Owens and Hitler's Olympics. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website. <music>